Welcome, everyone, to episode 249 of Some Like It, Scott. I'm one of your hosts, Scott Shelton, and this week we're talking about Dumb Money, the latest docudrama explaining a fairly complicated financial situation. With me to discuss it today, I have my co-host, Scott Harvey. Scott, how are you doing? I am good, Scott. Um, I went to see this movie last week. Um, yeah, d- didn't know too much about it. We'll get into it, obviously. But uh, I-, I think I- I'm probably one of the the amateurs coming into this story. Uh, so that was an interesting experience to uh, to get to to go in and learn something about finance. This big thing that happened, and I remember when it happened, but uh, didn't really know much of the details about it. So. That was an interesting experience. Um, so watched that on Thursday and uh, didn't didn't have too big of a weekend. Went to the Tennessee game on Saturday. Um, it was a, a nice little run out for them against UTSA. So not a big game or anything. But um, yeah, it's been been pretty chill. Yeah, I mean, I was gonna say like, had you really not heard about this? Thing? It was like the biggest news story in finance, at least on the financial I, side of things, yeah. from the pandemic, but. I knew, like, you know, everybody's putting their money in game stuff. I didn't know, like, the why and, mm-hmm. you know, some of the some of the details. Like, I didn't know anything about the whole, like, Robin Hood, you know, stopping people from buying shares and all this mm-hmm. stuff. Like, yeah, I, I, I finance is not something that I'm very interested in. And I just I probably should, you know, at least surprise myself of these stories when they're in the news. But it's just like I I glaze over a little bit if I read more than two paragraphs of, you know, high finance jargon. No high finance jargon and you slash roaring kitty. So I don't know what you're. Yeah, I mean, that that is fair. Again, I don't even think I really necessarily knew about like this being like a whole meme stock and Reddit and all that. Like, you know, okay, so you didn't know about that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was the, that was the craziest thing. I, not that I work specifically in finance, but obviously I worked at the time pretty adjacent to finance Mm -hmm. and, lots of friends who use robin hood and also i'm sure owned some game stock sit GameStop stock that's i always mix that up GameStop stock back in the day I, yeah that was just like one of the craziest things i remember this is like right before i i was changing jobs too and it was just sort of like every single day there was some crazy update in games i mean there was one day that they recount in the movie where the GameStop stock popped 200 dollars a share yeah in you know sort of a the big culminating day in january of 2020 but i guess maybe we're getting ahead of or 2021 i should say getting ahead of ourselves a little bit we'll, we'll start talking about that soon but yeah i mean it was just the wildest thing i feel like this is like the first real movie about something like this where i would like was a, a you know a real adult human being at the time that it happened because you know a lot of these sort of docudramas are I was around and I, and I definitely have memories of something like the financial crisis with a big short or whatever. But, you know, I was, we were in middle school when that happened, right? It's not the same as as being two, three years out of college and in the workforce when something like the uh, GameStop squeeze happened. Yeah, no, it, it was fascinating to me. And, I, you know, again, we'll get into it. I do think it probably maybe affected my um, experience with the movie just because a lot of it was discovery more than it will be for for most people probably sure well i mean i guess we might as well jump in and talk about it because we've been mentioning it already but today's topic of conversation is the new film dumb money directed by craig gillespie of i tanya fame as well as cruella more recently a, a movie we reviewed on the podcast and based on ben mesrick's nonfiction book the anti-social network 
Dumb Money charts the COVID-19 pandemic's most notorious financial news, the GameStop stock short squeeze in January 2021. Paul Dano stars as the real-life YouTuber and Redditor Keith Gill, a.k.a. Roaring Kitty, a.k.a. Deep Fucking Value, who in mid-2020 began to take a deep interest in the performance of the video game retail company GameStop, specifically his view of its underperformance on the stock market versus his perceived value of it. He identified its underperformance to be a result of hedge funds and institutional investors shorting the stock or essentially betting on it to fail. And these commercial investors were primarily led by the hedge fund Melvin Capital, run by Gabe Plotkin, played by Seth Rogen, and eventually financed by the PE firm Citadel Capital, owned by billionaire Ken Griffin, played by Nick Offerman, uh, as well as hedge fund manager Steve Cohen, played by Vincent D'Onofrio. They were betting that GameStop stock was going to fail, and Gill became the voice of the little man retail investor on YouTube and on the now infamous subreddit r slash Wall Street Bets that eventually popped the stock price of GameStop from under $1 to over $300 per share, accruing millions for Gill and fellow retail investors while destroying billions in value for these shorting hedge funds. That isn't the final twist in the story, however, as dumb money ropes and average Joes from different walks of life to help illustrate the impact of the event. Scott, did Gillespie's at-time kinetic The Big Short-like retelling of the GameStop saga send you long on dumb money stock? Or, like the financial bigwigs over and over in this film, conclude that dumb money was indeed dumb. Yeah, you know, I said that it probably affected my experience a little bit, that I didn't know as much about the story um, going into it. And I think it affected it in a positive way, probably, because, um, you know, I found that, uh, you know, the discovery aspect of it was a big draw um, for me in this movie. And it's presented in such an entertaining package um, that, you know, it's pretty hard to resist, even if you're somebody like me who, um, you know, isn't, you know, uh, inclined to uh, know about high finance like I was talking about. I think he streamed, Craig Gillespie streamlines like the, the important stuff really well here. It never feels like he's talking down to you like Adam McKay does at times. You know, I don't have a huge problem with the big short. Uh, obviously, my, my problems are more with Adam McKay's even more recent movies. Uh, but it, there's no denying that the big short dumbs it down, right? Like you have Margot Robbie in a bubble bath telling you about, you know, these concepts. I didn't feel like the that dumb money ever did that. Um, I felt like it was able to just convey all the information that we needed to know and not use too much jargon, not you know use too many complicated concepts. And when it did need to explain something, it didn't do so in a you know sort of hand wavy overall way. So I thought that was one of the big strengths of the movie. Um, I think Craig Gillespie has found himself a little bit of a niche um, in his last three films. Cause he has one of the strangest filmographies. If you really go back to the beginning of his career, making so, like a broad comedy, like Mr. Woodcock um, to, you know, making the fright night remake. He made the like Disney sports movie, million dollar arm. He made the finest hours, uh, which is like a shipwreck movie. I believe he's just all over the map, but I think, I, Tanya, obviously, is a movie that we both really love. And he he found this sort of kinetic style that really works for him. You know, maximalist, perhaps you could say. Um, obviously, that was on display in, 
in Cruella, and it's on display again here. I mean, one minute into this movie, he needle drops WAP by uh, Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion, which I was like, yeah, the, you're, we're definitely watching a Craig Gillespie movie now because that's just kind of one of his... Um, what one of his calling cards at this point is the sort of in in your face needle drops, and you know sometimes when it when it works, it works really well. Like uh, there's a lot of them in Italian that work really well. His style can be a lot. It can be annoying. It can be a little bit, you know, like I said, overwrought. Um, and there is some of that in Dumb Money, but um, I just think the it's it the the it's a price you're willing to pay because you end up getting a very, very entertaining version of a story that, again, could come across as highly technical or, you know, like like the idea of people just sitting around buying stock doesn't necessarily scream of, you know, a great cinematic experience. Um, but he's able to, to turn it into um, a really entertaining movie. And I think one of the reasons he, he's able to do that is by, you know, foregrounding sort of these human stories that are, you know, at the heart of this, not just Paul Dano um, as sort of the, the talismanic figure leading the, the movement, but these other sort of smaller stories about people who, you know, themselves, whether, you know, they, a lot of them were following Paul Dano, but they end up um, investing in GameStop and, you know, riding the roller coaster and they all have sort of their own stories going on. You have America Ferreira who plays this nurse. And obviously this movie is going on during COVID. You have like a couple of students, you have uh Talia Ryder and Mahala Harold. Um, you have Anthony Ramos playing a guy who works at GameStop actually. Um, and like I said, all of them sort of have their own stories. Um, you know, it maybe is a little bit too much at times uh, because uh, it, it it does turn into a bit, pretty big ensemble, not to mention, you know, again, all the hedge fund people, we get their sides of the story too, and Seth Rogen and Vincent D'Onofrio and Sebastian Stan, and it's a huge cast, and everybody is really good in the movie for the most part. Well, I wouldn't uh, say that we get their side of the story at all, but that's uh, not even... Well, yeah, no, that, that that is fair, but I mean, we, we get... They are portrayed like we, you know, we, we get. Yes, they are. They are portrayed as mustache, <laughs> mustache twirling villains in the, in the movie. No doubt. They about are. That. And, <laughs> and that that is certainly one of the that is certainly the biggest issue with the movie. And particularly in the third act, it does paint it out as a pretty cut and dry, a little bit corny, like hero versus villain, um, you know, saga, which, again, I don't know a whole lot about this whole thing, but I would be surprised if it's that neat and tidy. Um, I just felt like some of the speechifying and stuff like that, you know, sort of felt a little manipulative towards the end. And I don't, I didn't necessarily um, buy all the way in with that. But, you know, I didn't really expect a whole lot going into this movie, despite it being a director that I would now say that I like. Um, I think he does a really good job of turning this story into an engaging cinematic experience. I think the cast is really good. I was never bored watching the movie. And, I learned a lot. I, I felt like at the end of the day, I learned a lot and, you know, not in a pedantic or condescending way again, like a Adam McKay might give you. So I enjoyed the movie. Adam McKay just catching strays, even on podcasts that aren't even about I, his I movies. mean, you're bringing up, you, you are, you're the one to bring up the big short, I think. And it's the natural comparison here. So, um, yeah, but you, I, you, you said you liked that movie. Don't have a problem with it. And you're still throwing, throwing shade at him. It's just funny. It's all good. 
Um, no, uh, but, yeah. but that's what I'm saying. You know, even though I like the movie, it's undeniable that he does do some of that. Okay, we're now going to explain it to you because you're dumb uh, type of stuff, which I don't think you get as much in this movie. Yeah, I mean, ra- rather than like a narrator, a more or less a narrator explaining stuff to you, 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 it is sort of woven into the almost the dialogue of the film, which I actually found worse. I mean, I, I actually found that more clunky. I find some of the script stuff, especially in the first like 20, 30 minutes to be a little bit rough just because it's trying to, you have, ta- you have like Mahala Harold trying to explain to Talia Ryder, like what's going on with GameStop or whatever. And I'm just like, this is so cringe. Like there's this conversation did not happen <laughs> in this way. There's yeah. no way. Um, but look, overall, I think I, I still agree that I was mostly pretty entertained by the film. I think one of the things I, I was pretty optimistic going into the movie I am a big fan of Itania. I really enjoyed Cruella a lot a couple years ago. Obviously, this is a different. This is a film more more akin to Itania in that it is based on a real story. You even have sort of the Itania uh, bits at the end of the movie where, you know, in Itania they have the real life press conferences or whatever where people were talking. It it shows it side by side with with what they did in the movie and like Paul Walter Hauser giving that interview or whatever. Um, it, as the character versus the real life person, they kind of do that at the end of this movie, where they show you the real life yeah. depositions of Keith Gill and um, Steve or Steve, uh, not Steve Cohen, the other one, Ken Griffin. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's just I think you know, you have that sort of flair and that touch that Gillespie is obviously interested in, in imitating and replicating. And I think that's always like a fun little bit that he can throw in in the credits and in these relevant movies. But uh, yeah, overall, it was entertaining. I just I thought I think that. Ultimately, as much as 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 nice as it is to sort of introduce the real life impact and create these sort of like, you know, aggregate type characters of people who are like working at GameStop or working in the hospital or had college debt, like in college, I think that ultimately sort of dilutes some of the impact of the movie because it spreads out so much of the sort of narrative weight across these different stories in a way that all maybe is true to the real life events, but doesn't necessarily deliver in terms of like a dramatic climax. I didn't really love many of the subplots. Like I honestly would have been okay throwing all of them away and just focusing on Paul Dano. Um, and hit, like, even if it includes his relationship, more of his relationship with his brother and his family and his deceased sister. Like, I think that there was stuff there that was interesting. And I just can't really say that I was that interested in the direction the stories were going for, you know, the college women or uh, America Ferreira uh, or even Anthony Ramos for that matter. It's, it's almost mostly played for like the sort of like cathartic delivery of points. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Sympathy points are just like the little guy prevail, like kind of maybe prevails a little bit over, Mm -hmm. over the big man. But I think what the film, it's just kind of weird though. It almost feels atonal because at the end, I think a lot of the takeaways, obviously these people, these, these hedge funds and these billionaires lost a lot of money, but you know, they were never indicted. They were never prosecuted for any crimes. They are fine. Like these, these people still have millions, if not billions of dollars. And it almost feels atonal to be like Anthony Ramos gets to like flip off his boss. Who's like telling him to sell used games instead of new games. And I'm like, what is the point of this? Like, what is the actual point of this? And I had a hard time really understanding that. And, you know, I, I guess I didn't really feel like a lot of those subplots delivered on the tone or the purpose or the outcome of the film, especially since like, it's really trying to paint Keith Gill as like, like you said, almost a pretty heroic figure 
and not that he's not, but like he had a lot of like stuff circling around him about whether he was manipulating markets to drive up the value of his own investments. So that, I mean, that is just as much a crime as what the hedge funds were doing with Robin hood. And obviously there's like a lot of complicated elements and more inside insider ish kind of like shadiness going on with some of the stuff, especially that Ken Griffin was doing with the Robin hood CEO who's played by Sebastian Stan in this movie. But I just think it, it comes off as ultimately like a little bit not one-sided because I think even as one-sided as it is, I think it's clear that like what these millionaires and billionaires are doing and the fact that they will always win in the stock market. I think that is like a true theme and I think does sort of ring true ultimately. So I, I don't mean to say that because I'm questioning the specific portrayal of some of the things in the film as maybe not being like holistic doesn't mean that I don't think the sort of the ultimate intention doesn't still hold true. Cause I think that people like Gabe Plotkin and Ken Griffin and Steve Cohen, the owner of the New York Mets are, you know, people who it makes, I think you should maybe question the financial tactics and the system and the way it's structured a little bit. Just in the same way that Dick Cheney is bad, but what, what narrative is vice furthering by just telling us over and over again that Dick Cheney is bad. Sure. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I, I wouldn't think too much about Vice in the context of this of this movie because it's I just that... the example that came to mind when you were when you were saying that, right? Like, yeah, like yes, these are still bad guys. Like, it's not that we're saying that oh, they deserve a, more of a fairer shake, I guess. But you know, it's just not as interesting of a narrative. Yeah. Um, no. I. Yeah. I'm. Yeah. I'm not even saying they deserve a fairer shake. That's not even actually what my what my take really is on the movie. Yeah, I think no, I'm more I, I interested. Know. Yeah, I'm more interested in just saying like, well, if you want to tell the story of what's going on here, like, do you have to be cartoonish with the like with the Seth Rogen portrayal? I mean, maybe that's what Gay Plotkin was doing in real life, but it kind of just feels like some some elements are just like so crazy that there's no way that's like actually what happened. Like, there's no way he's doing all these things and like that he's sort of portrayed as doing in in sort of the outlandish way that he's you know, just like completely destroying the na- like the next door neighbor's house to put in a tennis court because some like, because like Steve Cohen was like making fun of him or whatever, like not having a tennis court or whatever it was. Like, I'm sure he was built. I'm sure he was doing those things. But is that like really the motivation? It just feels like kind of, kind of cartoonish at times in a way that I don't know if it's like ultimately realistic. And I think almost sort of under like undercuts some of the some of the really, I think, actual problematic stuff that they're putting on display but like ultimately i I feel like i'm I'm coming off more negative than i than i mean to about this movie because especially after the first 15 20 minutes when all the different subplots were established and i think sort of the engine was running so to speak on the film and gillespie was sort of really allowed to lean into i think some of the filmmaking techniques that he's very accomplished at and very competent in the film does really start to hum and it entertains and it's sort of set back less and less i think as the movie goes on and really just plays itself out over its 100 minute runtime in a in a mostly pretty enjoyable way and in spite of some of those things that i highlighted earlier that i wasn't as invested in some of the subplots or any of the non-paul dano subplots i also think the film is less invested in them because i think there comes a stretch in the movie where you're not really hearing very much from the minor characters and it really is all about keith gill and so i think at some point the film realizes where it needs to spend its time and benefits from it because of that yeah, I, I agree. You know, I, I agree with a lot of what you're saying, although the 
you know, subplots maybe don't always make the most sense. I do think he does have these like little montage moments throughout the movie, which really do work and, you know, are, are kind of part of his, you know, overly flashy style, perhaps that he's now patented, but um, where sure. he kind of bring, brings everything together. And, um, you know, there's, there's even one, I, I'm trying to remember what song it is, but there's one where they're like all singing the same song basically. And it's like flashing between their, I don't know. It, it's like, it doesn't matter probably a whole lot in the grand scheme of the movie, but like, it's fun to watch. It's exciting to watch those sort of moments when he, with the fluid editing and, and you know, how he's able to, to bring all these um, disparate stories together in this, you know, stylish montage. So I appreciated those moments and, you know, I liked the performances of those people. So maybe that's why I'm a little bit more forgiving of it, but um, it, it is a lot that he tries to pack into um, you know, a, a movie that's just over a hundred minutes long. Yeah, and and look, I think the entertainment value of a large chunk of the movie, I think, does justify that in my mind. Like, I don't, that doesn't seem like crazy to me that someone would feel that way. And yeah, I I think it, it really is becoming. Yeah, you know, I haven't really, I guess, I haven't really seen any of Gillespie's movies pre Itania, but the whole like needle drop poppy soundtrack that he sort of in, almost like effortlessly weaves through his movies, including Cruella, I think is very successful. And he definitely is part of that. Uh, sorry, definitely has a, a big, a big part of that in this movie as well. I mean, you mentioned the, the WAP, um, the WAP uh, needle drop sort of in the first few minutes of the film. I'm like looking up the soundtrack right now to see if I can figure out which one is the, uh, is the one you, uh, you were referencing that everyone was singing in the film. See, there's WAP, there's 21 set, is it Savage? Well, Savage is definitely used quite a bit. It, it might be, but Savage is, you know, of course, what Anthony Ramos is trying to, like, right. jokingly yeah. make his TikTok dance to so he can win the, you know, employee contest or whatever at, at GameStop. But it, it it comes up later in the movie. It might it might have been Savage. I don't know. But there, there's a moment where they sort of do a little musical montage that I thought was yeah. actually a lot of fun. The other songs are Stack It, Better Man, You Make Me Want to Purr, Oz, Lit, Humble, I Do Anything for Love. Oh, it was Humble. I, I believe it was okay. Humble because like you get like America's Ferreira's kids are singing it in the back of the car. Kid is singing in the back of the car or yeah. whatever. Um, yeah, and I she's see. like, oh, no cursing. Yeah, that that was that was good. I mean, that that's just a great song. Um, so that I think that was the, the montage that I was thinking of. Got it. Yeah. Well, let's talk about some of the cast. I mean, Paul Dano, I think, is is sort of the lead of the movie. At first, I wondered if it would just be like a true ensemble film. But it really he really does ultimately come off, I think, as the lead of the film. Probably sort of secondary to him are the hedge fund people. So you have Nick Offerman, who plays uh, Ken Griffin, who's the head of Citadel. You have Seth Rogen, who plays the head of Melvin Capital, Gabe Plotkin. And then you have Vincent D'Onofrio, who plays the hedge fund billionaire, Steve Cohen. Scott, any of those sort of lead-ish performances stand out to you specifically? Probably Paul Dano being the one for yes. me. Yeah, yeah, de definitely. I think he's the standout performance in the movie. Um, it's it's nice that he is can be counted on to anchor a movie like this, because I think he's probably thought more of as a character actor um, and, mm -hmm. you know, for, from over the years, always a really good character actor. Um, but 
maybe even though he was certainly not my favorite part of the Batman, maybe he's like, you know, riding on the hype of that a little bit. Cause I think that probably raised awareness of, of him because a lot of people did really enjoy his performance in that movie. Um, but not his he, performance uh, of the Fablemans. Yeah, sure. Uh, he's also really good in the Fablemans, but um, yeah, he's, he's pretty magnetic as this um, guy. Um, and now I can't even think of what his name is, but Keith Gill. Yeah. Uh, he, he's pretty magnetic as this, you know, kooky YouTuber, right? Like you can understand why people are, you know, drawn to him and are like, oh yeah, if he tells me to buy this stock, I'm going to go buy it. Right. I'm going to, I'm going to believe him, even though he's just some guy on YouTube, he is charismatic. He is magnetic. Like he, he knows the right things to say to people. And I do think the movie maybe could have explored that more like to the point you were making up front about, you know, how much is he, you know, and just, just an innocent sort of, you know, retail investor who's just like, you know, has aspirations of, of making, making it big and how much of it is this sort of a calculated effort to, um, you know, drive up the price of this stock and, you know, kind of manipulate the markets as you're talking about. Um, they don't really, you know, they, they kind of just want to paint him as a hero, which is probably a little bit to the movie's detriment. Um, again, not that he isn't, but just could have been a more complex portrayal. But I think his performance, you know, it, it's it's energetic, it's entertaining, um, it's different from what we're used to seeing from him. Um, again, because he usually does play these sort of like weirdo, like character actor freaks you know and, and stuff like the batman and yeah. there will be although it, it does feel pretty similar to his portrayal and of steven you know i forget the dad's name but the fableman character and in, in uh bert in the fable um yeah. yeah yeah he yeah i mean and, and he does get to you know have some of his little like weird moments like talking about the chicken tenders and everything and um, the tendies let's go yeah, I didn't really enjoy that part, but uh, I guess that's you didn't like you didn't like enjoying him dunking his tendies so. in champagne. No, I don't like the phrase tendies. Uh, it it <laughs> makes me cringe. But I, I mean, I guess that's obviously something that the real guy did. So um, yeah, oh, probably not much yeah. you can you can do there. But um, I thought he was great. You know, the hedge fund guys are, are fine. I'm not a Seth Rogen fan. Um, I honestly haven't been a huge fan of anything Nick Offerman's done outside of Parks and Rec. Um, and who's, yeah, Vincent D'Onofrio, he's fine. Uh, I he didn't just, like his Last of Us episode? Okay. Oh, that's true. He was really good in that. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. That's, that's a good shout. But um, yeah, you know, I didn't, I didn't care. These characters are supposed to be, you know, douchebags, like, again, sort of one dimensional douchebags. And in that regard, I think they succeeded because I kind of already think of Seth Rogen as being a douchebag when he comes on screen. So um, good on him for that. But I, I think it, between the people that you've called out there, Paul Dano is clearly the standout. Yeah, I think Dano is the one. Like I said earlier on I, I, in the film, I wasn't sure that he was really going to get the chance to shine in the movie just because how many subplots they were trying to wrangle into the film. But I was, I mean, I was sort of relieved when, the middle chunk of the movie, you know, latter half of the movie really does let him sort of plot out and take center stage in the, in the film. And I think that 
there was just a lot more there, I think, that they could have explored if they'd given it more, even more time and, and sort of short shrifted the subplots even more than they did to remove them entirely. Like, I thought that the, the potential to explore his relationship with his parents, uh, specifically maybe as it relates to his uh, sister who died during COVID, I think was an interesting thread that got a little bit of exploration, but not very much. And also, I mean, his potentially strained relationship with uh, his wife, who's played by Shailene Woodley. Um, obviously, they, oh, I shouldn't say obviously, I mean, it, it appears they stayed together and, and work things out. But it feels like, I mean, I mean, Shailene Woodley is like a, a passenger in this movie. And I feel like there was some real potential to have her oh, yeah. be more substantive. Yeah, I, I don't, I didn't actually realize she was in the movie until I was watching it. But I always think she's great in everything. And so I got pretty excited when I saw that she was in the movie. And yeah, what seemed at first was going to be a, a, a more substantial role. It was more like Anne Hathaway in in Dark Water. Yeah, it definitely doesn't go in that direction. Um, You know, she she she's quite literally a passenger, you know, in his car at one point. But like, yeah, also a passenger in the movie um, in that regard too. But she she you know, there's not a whole lot of tension. I feel like between them, Um, she's because they have that like one scene where they try to cook up tension. I think when he's refusing to sell his his stakes. But even she company. is like, but even she is kind of like, eh, I don't know. Like she, she doesn't seem like she's fully in the camp of, oh, you gotta sell. Yeah. Like I think you know, she can see both sides of it too. So they don't even really go all the way with that. Uh, yeah, I agree. I think if if there's a, a like the most wasted person in the ensemble, it's probably her. Yeah, and I think that's disappointing. I mean, I I think that there's a lot of potential in that. Maybe there's not. Maybe there's nothing really there to cook with. But it really felt like there was there was potential in that relationship because I mean, look, if I were in her shoes, I'd be like, "My guy, you need to you need to yeah. sell." <laughs> you need to Which sell. is what the, the the mom and dad are saying, obviously. So sure, and and I think one of the things that it, it's not made fully clear very well is that he did so. Keith Gill in real life did actually sell some of his stake for about nine million dollars. He held some of it, and and they sort of explained some of these dynamics at the end of the film. And he's still holding, or at least still was at the time that he stopped posting, was still holding a large portion of GameStop stock. But he did sell some of it, right? So he did end up actually cashing out in a small portion of his of his stake. But look, that's something that the, the film doesn't really touch on, and, and it just feels like a missed, that just feels like another missed opportunity because Paul Dano. I agree with everything you were saying about him. He does really he gets the weirdo side of stuff just because this whole notion of like putting on this bandana and wearing these like kitten shirts like that is sort of the weirdness that I think we're sort of alluding to in some of these other roles that he's been successful in whether I mean that's like kind of like almost almost uh you know the behavior that you'd expect from something like the Riddler right like he's wearing a bandana and this like weird graphic t-shirt right he's more or less doing that he's wearing a mask in the Batman and duct taping people and stuff like that it's he's doing weird stuff obviously that is different than what we're talking about here. But I think that sort of weirdo energy that he can often bring to the role does get channeled into certain aspects. I got to say one thing though, uh, completely unbelievable that Paul Dano would run a four minute mile. I'm sorry, my guy. Yeah. No well, way. Heck was, was that? It's just like kind of said in passing. Pete Davidson just kind of says it in passing. Um, and yeah, I, I, especially not the way he's portrayed in this movie. Yeah, I mean that in real life he he Keith Gill was a very successful like at least high school I'm not sure about collegiate um, like runner and he did almost run a four minute mile like you can go on 
online and see and, and see that for yourself, like see the records and stuff that he holds at his high school or I think high school, maybe it was college. But yeah, it's just like kind of strange because Paul Dano, like I couldn't even imagine him running a mile. I can barely imagine him running a mile at all. I'm not, I'm not trying to disparage Paul Dano, but it's like I don't picture him running. And so it's very funny, these like different like montage, not not quite montage, but these different clips in the film where he's like at the at the track and he's like running a mile. I, I mean, I guess that's what he's doing. I don't even know. Uh, so it's, I find that very funny. And and that feels a bit asynchronous, although it does lead to, I think, a, a, a fairly touching moment at the end with his brother um, played by Pete Davidson. Although, again, like Pete Davidson. I, I mean, he is what he is, right? Like, I don't even mean that as like a, as a knock. It's just like he's. He is what he is at this point. You know what you get when you're casting Pete Davidson in your movie. But I think that he does get like a relatively touching moment with Paul Dano uh, towards the end of the movie. And I think that works kind of well. I don't know if you if you shared that belief. Yeah, no, I, I hear what you're saying. Stuff like brotherly relationships usually like get to me. But um, I just can't really with Pete Davidson. It feels like he's doing a poor man's version of... Uh, of uh, Jimmy Tatro from uh, American Vandal in here, where he's just like the DoorDash driver who drives around eating everyone's food, and it's just like a screw up, um, yeah. basically. Um, I just, you know, it's just it's standard Pete Davidson shtick. I I felt and yeah, that, that stuff. Uh, I didn't I feel like he added added a whole lot to the movie, but yeah, I think that's probably that's probably fair. Any other people in the cast, though, you said you don't think Pete Davidson had a lot in the movie, but it seems like you might have had some good words for America Ferreira and Talia Ryder, maybe. Yeah, I liked America Ferreira in particular in the movie. Um, having kind of a strange comeback here between this and obviously Barbie, um, having a big role in Barbie. But um, yeah, I, I don't know. I thought she brought, you know, she, again, she she grounded this movie. And like, it, it's a movie where you have, you know, the hedge fund guys, you have the really rich people even like our hero, you know, is this really sort of intelligent guy talking about these high finance, financial concepts and, and all that. Um, I liked that they just had like, she's just a normal nurse. She's a single mom. She's trying to make ends meet. Um, she's struggling because, you know, the, the COVID hours and everything that she's having to work and not getting paid enough and not getting. It sounds like she's really struggling because she had a deadbeat ex-husband who left her high and dry yeah so i think you really do get invested in her fate at least as far as the the subplots are like i I know one of the times when i like had a visible reaction was when you know they're showing how much everybody is is up or down and at one point you know when when the rot when robin hood gets shut off um and everything sort of swings down and she goes from like being up almost a million dollars, I think, to like now being under. Um, I was like, you know, could that like you could you could feel the pain there on that one because I think you do enjoy that. Um, you you want to root for that character, even if it's you know. Was it really a million dollars? I don't I don't know if she was ever up a million dollars. I I thought at one point it was like nine hundred thousand or something like that. Yeah, maybe it was. I could I could be wrong. I, I, Honestly, I, there I have, you know, all the neighbors are all the numbers get conflated in my head kind of. Yeah. Well, I was always, I was also like, there's cause there's so many different subplots. I couldn't remember like, cause one of them was only up like 150,000, but that might've been the college, the co- like I might've been Talia Ryder. I don't I'm getting them mixed up as well. So it's possible that you're right. 
Yeah, that that that's possible too. I I can't remember, but you know that that's another example too of like, oh, you know, she's trying to pay off her student loans, right? So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, relatable stuff in sure. a movie that could have been very high minded and like, you know, not really connected to the experience of the average person. Yeah, I, I guess I do. I look, I definitely hear and see the benefits of really trying to translate the story to like the average person's impact because even though keith gill is a working man like he's a lower middle class guy who's just working an analyst job at mass mutual which is like not obviously a big bulge back at frank that's taking advantage of all these things like he's very much like your average joe kind of guy he doesn't quite you don't quite connect with him in that way in the film and you're not supposed yeah. to i don't think yeah. so i understand the <laughs> virtue of having your America Ferreira, your Talia Ryder, et cetera, in the film. I just wonder if there was maybe a better way to, to create that and execute on that because I did feel like there was just too many moving parts to the average Joe piece. Yes, maybe it does create some nice montages to the what you were pointing out earlier. And maybe you get some like sort of like almost like cheesy moments where you get Anthony Ramos to, you know, you get the chance to see him dunk on his supervisor or whatever played Dane by Dane DeHaan. Yeah. Um, but but that that just again that sort of didn't feel like quite like the point of the movie, and so I wonder if there was a, a way. I mean, maybe it literally is just like doubling down on America Ferrera and and only her subplot, and excluding some of the less impactful ones because I think there is a lot of potential there uh, overall, especially as someone who's like, yes, like paying like students in college in in debt like that is obviously a very relatable uh, for some people, but I feel like the uh, the visceral cringe that happens as you see a single mother who's responsible for two children sort of riding this roller coaster is much stronger than Talia Ryder, whether or not she's going to like her, her like college debt. Like that's not to minimize the impact of, of college loans and things like that. Cause I think that is a very serious topic as well that, I mean, it's clearly a relevant political issue as well because the whole, you know, debt relief uh, executive order that Biden had made, getting challenged and then overridden. I think that's like clearly a, a, a political issue as well, worth having an opinion on probably, but it feels like for the purpose of the film, maybe doubling down on America Ferrera might've been more, might've more impactful. Cause I think if I had to pick one of the performances, although I do really like Talia Ryder and Mahala Harold, Mahala Harold ironically probably becoming, became famous for a show that is about, that is about finance, about a young, industry, a young yeah. person into the finance world and industry, but uh, obviously here playing the other side of the coin. Yeah, no, I, I I hear what you're saying there. Again, I do think the movie has a problem with being overstuffed, so maybe honing in on that subplot in particular, because I think that is the most memorable one. That's the one that I, I take away from the movie. Um, the person uh, out of the ensemble that I think about the most um, is that American Ferrer character. Yeah. Any other thoughts? I, we haven't really talked too much about the Robin Hood of it all. Like You've alluded to it a couple of times. I think we've, we've all, I have as well. But there is this whole, not subplot, but sort of almost like accessory to what's going on in the core of the film with Sebastian Stan, who plays one of the co-founders of sort of re the retail investing app, Robinhood. He I think his name is Vlad Tenev. I don't remember the name of the other person. Is it? I think it was by Rushi Koda, though. Um, but they, yeah, they play the founders of Robinhood and, and they're sort of in the film as an adjacency to what's going on with the hedge funds and to 
display the sort of leverage that these financial institutions can place on the system in order to uh, thumb, basically putting the thumb on the scale to swing things in their favor. And the, the film takes a stance, a pretty strong stance, that Ken Griffin, the head of Citadel Capital, who also is the head of Citadel Securities, not to get into like super inside baseball, but was essentially one of the people, one of the companies that was powering the ability for Robinhood to function as a retail investing app. And the film makes a pretty strong stance that Ken Griffin had sort of a conflict of interest, essentially, and that he had a $3 billion investment in Melvin Capital to protect that was shorting the GameStop stock, betting on it to fail, uh, while also running a company, although separate from Citadel Capital, running a separate company in Citadel Securities that's powering the sort of technology, some of the technology in the market, but the market, the marketplace behind Robinhood to, to buy and sell GameStop stock. And the film posits that Ken Griffin placed leverage on Sebastian Stan's character, Vlad Tenev, to shut down the buying capabilities of GameStop stock in the Robinhood app, while simultaneously shutting down Wall Street bets as well, so that people could not communicate with each other and presumably to try to uh, scare people into selling their, selling their positions in GameStop, thereby decreasing the value and um basic and saving the money of melvin capital saving and, melvin capital yeah. yeah saving melvin capital and ken griffin's three billion dollar investment mm -hmm. in it as well a lot of that is like not proven right like they make a lot of things <laughs> they 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 sort of make a lot of draw a lot of not i wouldn't say conclusions but they lay a lot of inferences like, yeah exactly there's a lot of inferences being being made in in the film and certainly uh you can understand the film's position at the end when they're doing the different cards, explaining the outcome, different stuff, and how the SEC like didn't necessarily ever file charges against these people, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't know. That was a, sort of a lot of a lot of uh, opining on what is probably some of the most complicated stuff that actually is happening in the movie. But Scott did did this sort of aspect of the film, specifically Sebastian Stan's sort of performance and role in the movie did that work for you and did that sort of seamlessly weave itself into the narrative of what was happening with the hedge funds and the GameStop short yeah I thought so I mean I thought it, it made sense as far as you know why this was in the movie and and also you know it kind of makes the takeaway from the film a little bit more potent I think because Robin Hood is still quite you know popular and um, yeah, it's probably the most popular retail retail yeah. app. Yeah, um, and, and so I think it it makes you think twice about about that, obviously, and and how easily, you know, these rich and powerful people can just you know stop what's going on, can just you know the the it, the point is made obviously that these regular people have to you know work so hard and put everything on the line to you know, drive up the, the price of this stock. Um, and then, you know, with maybe a phone call or two again, and they imply that Ken Griffin is able to just sort of shut it all down. And um, obviously there's, there's more to it because it ends up going back up and the roller coaster continues. But um, yeah, I, I thought it all made sense with what the, the story that the movie was trying to tell the ideas that it was trying to get across as far as, um, 
you know, the, the corruption of these, you know, the wealthy and powerful, like um, the hedge fund people and like Sebastian Stan. Um, and, you know, just, j again, just kind of leaves you with a, that little bit of bad taste about Robin Hood and this extremely, you know, powerful and, and uh, you know, used app um, and company and um, what, what they're capable of doing. Yeah, I do think that this is the part where maybe where the film excels the most at really sort of trying to simplify some pretty yeah. complicated stuff that's happening. <clears throat> that said, I also find Sebastian Stan's portrayal to be like one of the worst characterizations in the movie. Like they really paint this guy as like a complete loser and like yeah. an idiot. And I like not that I know who Vlad Tenev is in real life, obviously, but they really make him out to be a pretty like weak founder of a business who is like totally at the whims of these much larger financial institutions that, um, that in some ways power his business, I suppose. And, but although not as much as you would think, considering those are institutions aren't using his app, right. His app is, is for the retail investors. That's what I think sort of that it almost like doesn't fully work for me for this reason, because Obviously, he needs people like Ken Griffin to make his app work. But the notion that that it would that like he didn't have some ability like there like I just wanted a little bit more understanding there because I just felt like that the story of like what Vlad Tenev's role in all this was really incomplete. I think the film did a good job of simplifying and explaining the different actors in the situation, but maybe not uh, what I could only imagine is like could be a potentially more interesting situation to explore. Part of that might be because no one really knows what exactly what happened there. Um, so that could be one of the limitations, but considering how strong the inference is that is made in it, it, it kind of feels like there should have been something more there to sort of back that up. And I think that's where one of the shortcomings of, in the sort of narrative I'm telling, but again, I know I'm saying all these, all these things like the way it is ultimately brought to the screen in this and throughout the other parts of the movie it's very entertaining it's very easy to watch it flies by very quickly and it's a, you know it's a trade-off but something that maybe as someone who is a little bit more knowledgeable and hungry for maybe a little bit more detail i would have wanted more of yeah no i i don't dis disagree i think um that there there's probably a lot more there and that was a common critique i was seeing of the movie again for pe from people who are more aware of the this whole saga saying that there was actually quite a bit that was left out of the movie. Yeah. I believe it was also one of the, one of the criticisms of the source material as well. The anti-social network, mm. which is the book yeah. by Ben, by journalist Ben Mesrick that I, you know, I think that is a limitation in that as well, but that's also part of the fact that like, this is an event that happened only two and a half years ago. Like it's yeah. not like that much yeah. time has really passed and quite a quick, quite a quick, they turned it around really quick. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's, uh, it's almost understandable. So I feel like it's really hard sometimes to get that really deep level of detail when all of the main actors in the in the film or in the real life events are still very much alive. And in some ways, if you're Keith Gill and, and you're these other hedge fund managers, they're kind of still in the middle of it. Like GameStop, still like GME stock today, we just go look, it's trading at $18, which is still six. You know, I think when in June of 2020, when when Keith Gill is like buying shares, it's like it's like three ish dollars. So that's still, you know, 
five to six times what it was trading at when the movie starts. And um, and there's a point late in 2020 when the stock was share was trading under a dollar, I believe. Like it was close to completely failing, essentially. So the sort of roller coaster, although not to the same high, like peaks and valleys, it does still continue, I think. So it's kind of hard to always get these <laughs> ongoing level of information. And it, you know, I don't know what the statute of limitations are like for these types of things, but you know, maybe there is still more information to be divulged through investigations or more reporting that happens over the next few years or, and, you know, when there's dumb money part two made, or maybe we'll get more of the story on some of these things. Like, obviously that's a joke, but, but it is, it is limiting. Right. And even the yeah. big, the big short, like that was six or seven years after the financial crisis uh, in yeah. the 2000s. So there was a lot more time for things to uh, unravel and, and part of that also benefited from the fact that uh, there was so much public public um, sort of outcry and backlash and stuff that came into that <laughs> work so much it felt like so much more of the of the happenings there were in the public eye as opposed to a lot of this stuff a lot of this shit, like obviously sort of the keys information and stuff here a lot of that sort of is happening behind closed doors and what's happening between Citadel securities and and Robin Hood is is still sort of left to be imagined to an extent yeah no i i would not be surprised at all if there's still more to this story that we have to learn yeah well i think on that i think we're covering most of the big stuff was there any lingering stuff you wanted to, to mention in the emotional beats that we haven't talked about any details that you think worth mentioning no i mean again keith gill's uh speech is you know a little bit much that he he gives sort of during his deposition we do obviously see some of that um mm -hmm. in the real life footage i actually found that the more effective part of that uh though was actually the seth rogan character and how he's giving like that very um sanitized uh, corporate yeah sanitized yeah. speech that like his lawyers have like you know, okay. nitpicked every single word and phrase or whatever. And then we, you know, reveal the real life footage and it's, yeah, it's like the same thing. It's, it's the guy giving the exact speech. So yeah, um, yeah. I thought that was pretty effective. They do, that like, with Nick, they do that with Nick Offerman too, which is which yeah. funny. That was close to the level of, you know, like the Paul Walter Hauser stuff you're talking about in I, Tanya. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, I think if, if that's it, then we can end a wrap up. What is your favorite scene or moment from dumb money? Yeah, I think it's the humble sing-along that I was talking about earlier. I mean, first of all, the song, you know, kind of hits in the in the context of the movie. Um, but also, you know, it's just one of those moments where I think Gillespie really shows off his his style, which is what makes this movie entertaining. And he brings all the characters and subplots together for a moment um, in a way that I found exciting and, um, you know, indicative of his abilities as a, a director and what what he's able to bring um that makes this movie so much more entertaining that than it could have been yeah no i think that's definitely a highlight i definitely think it is sort of the highlight of having all those different components in the film so that he can do something like that that's pretty flashy that's pretty eye-catching for me i i'm gonna go with something a little bit different i alluded to it earlier and i mainly bring this up because i i really view it as the potential for this movie to have done more but I did like the scene between Paul Dano and Pete Davidson where where his brother gets him the pair of Nikes that he th there's a there's a, an emotional conversation earlier in the film, I believe, 
that where he didn't buy a new pair of shoes or something like that earlier on in his life. I don't remember all the specific details, but it sort of pays off in the last scene or one of the last scenes of the movie where Pete Davidson um, gets Paul Dano, these the sort of new Nikes for him to run in. And then I think the, one of the very last shots of the movie is they're doing like the naked, the naked mile or whatever that, that they had joked that Pete Davidson had done when he was in high school. But I really liked that. I thought it was emotionally successful. And it, again, I really felt like that was, you know, as, as much as that is a highlight of the film, I think it's also a disappointment that there wasn't more of that, that there wasn't more attempt to deliver the emotional side of that character and, and fleshing out Keith Gill more as even more and, and all these other relationships that I was alluding to earlier. But that, I thought that was successful. And I think the, the film could have done more of that. Yeah, no doubt. Out of 10, what are you giving dumb money? I'll give it a 7.3. I think uh, it's a lot of fun. Definitely some missed opportunities like we talked about, but um, I don't have too many bad things to say because it was um, it was the experience that I think I wanted from this. Sure. I'm giving it a 6.5, a little bit lower. Probably not a huge surprise that I'm a little bit lower. But yeah, again, I think this is an enjoyable film. I'd still recommend people go watch it. It's, it's pretty entertaining. And uh, for the 100-minute runtime, I think it goes by pretty quickly. And if you're really not familiar with oh, what sure. happened during the game shop, GameStop short, then this is a this is a pretty good basic explainer. Just understanding that, you know, maybe there's a little bit more nuance and detail around the margin that would that complicates the story a little bit more. All right, that should do it for our discussion of dumb money. We're gonna take a short break. When we come back, we'll be talking about the distribution changes for the upcoming Mean Girls musical film adaptation, as well as the end of one of the two ongoing. Hollywood strikes being very near on the horizon. We'll be right back. two of today's episode of some like it scott scott as mentioned before the break i think one of the the big pieces of news that sort of came out of the weekend and specifically last night from hollywood here in la where i'm actually recording from right now is that there seems to be a tentative agreement between the wga the writers guild of america and uh, the amptp which represents the studios and the producers in hollywood that will see the at least the writer strike end sometime in the next couple weeks. There's different rules about whether or not the writers can go back into production while the final deal is being voted and confirmed by the Writers Guild body, but it is understood that um, the, uh, the language of the agreement is finalized. It will be presented to the Writers Guild to members to read and to approve. That process takes a couple weeks uh, to vote on and to ratify, but it seems like for all intents and purposes, this strike will be ending uh, sometime in the next couple of weeks uh, with the writers getting back to work, maybe even sooner than that, if uh, if that is approved by the Guild. Scott, any thoughts here as we sort of end the first half of the two sort of dual strike that we've seen over the past? I mean, almost it's kind of crazy to say, but it's been almost four or five months. Yeah, the strike has been ongoing. I mean, obviously, it's it's good news. You know, we we want wanted to see this resolved. We wanted um to, to you know to see everyone satisfied with um 
the the resolution so we can get back to making movies which i think is what everyone wanted to do um i don't think it should have taken this long i mean um you know this was a, a point that many people were making but the a24 and neon were able to meet the uh, writer's demands fairly early on in this whole um you know process and, and keep those productions going and um, it was really just the big studios that were holding everything up which in you know when you really think about it doesn't make a whole lot of sense um when you compare the resources that you know they have to to what a24 and neon have but um, well, it's, a little, it's a little different it's a little different right yeah. because they're the a24 and neon aren't a part of the amptp and the whole point of yeah. the amptp is that they're going to collect it basically the studios the major studios are going to collectively bargain collectively um, bargain. with they're they're not a union but they they sort of have this bargaining group that functions as a union as a more or less like union bargaining agreement or a body to bargain with unions sorry that's a better way to phrase it so it's just the fact that these these smaller indie studios are not a part of that and they're willing Yes, they're willing to meet the demands of the writers um, and the actors for that matter as well. But it does it does feel different the way they it's just it's just a whole different can of worms for them. Right. Because they're a lot of their business isn't even in in um, producing movies from scratch. Neon's getting more into it. And H24 has gotten more into it. But so much of their business is just acquiring films that are already done. Right. So it, it's just a kind of a different a different can of worms for them. But look, I think it's a valid it's a valid point to bring up. Right. 100 percent that they were they were willing to cave on economics when the bigger the bigger studios that have more financial backing and more financial leverage would not yeah i just hope that you know everyone kind of learned their lesson from this whole thing and um, what is the what is the lesson i guess i'm curious what do you think the lesson is i mean that these people deserve their fair share right like i mean Mm -hmm. i know it's more complicated than that right and you've talked about it before that maybe some of the writer's demands were a little bit unreasonable at times. Um, but I, you know, I just think that um, these sorts of things don't help anyone out. Right. At the end of the day, sure. the, these, these, I mean, the industry loses. Yeah. 100%. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And, and everyone, I mean, for the most part, I feel like everyone wants to make art. Like that's why we're, that's why everyone's a part of this whole industry. Um, yeah. And so ev- everyone loses when something like this happens, and um, you know you don't want it to to drag on like this again in the the future. Because what there was another one of these about fifteen years ago, maybe was about the last time I think um, fifteen sixteen years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, even them happening even less frequently would be would be even better. Sure. Yeah, I think I think one of the things for me that that strikes me is that you know, for, forget whether or not you think in like the writers or the actors or the studio's demands are reasonable or unreasonable. Just setting that aside, I think one of the the disappointing things from an industry perspective or, or someone who is interested in in making sure that these films and TV shows and art gets made is that it took so like so much time was spent just not negotiating, right? Yeah. I think that's like one of the notable things about this strike is that sort of the tactics on both sides were not underhanded or, or, or brutal or anything like that. Just like it wasn't, it wasn't, it didn't feel productive a lot of the time. Right. Like, it, like there's these, all these reports saying that you have like the AMPTP is going to like basically refuse to negotiate for weeks or months or whatever. And then on the other side, you have like the writers and the actors like constantly trying to like 
use their their like social media leverage to sh like shame people and and things like that like and obviously people have their motivations and their intent and maybe it did help further their ultimate uh, goals and the outcome for both sides but i think for getting a deal done faster i found those tactics on both sides i think to be disappointing frankly and i'm curious to see how that will if that will continue as the actor strike still is ongoing and that you know those negotiations will start probably in the next or restart i should say in the next you know week or two and right before this happened too, the AMPTP like basically said, this is going to be our final offer, right? Like, which what does that mean? Your final offer, like, you know. Well, I think what well what that actually means is that well, I think I mean to be fair, I think they mean final offer for this bargaining phase, right? Like they would say it's like if this offer were not deemed good enough or acceptable, they would stop negotiation with the writers and just move on to the actors and try to negotiate with the actors uh -huh. because they actually can't negotiate with both at the same time. It's like actually because mm -hmm. there's only one negotiating body for the mm -hmm. AMPTP. So I think the notion there is that like if we are not able to reach an agreement by the end of yesterday with this offer that they had, with the offer that they had given, then they would be moving on to the to negotiate with the actors and then come back to the writers after. Yeah, t totally. I, I I hear that. It just like struck me as odd when they came out with that. It's that very it's sad. very weird, like almost like grandstanding happening. Yeah, for sure. I do. I do agree with that. Glad it's all wrapped up. Um, you know, uh, hopefully we can get the actors part of it taken care of. I'm just excited that we can get back to Jeopardy because, uh, you know, that was the the biggest casualty. For, although the Second Chance Tournament is airing right now. I don't believe they're working on any any new episodes because... That's interesting. Uh, so Jeopardy was getting struck? Why? That's interesting to me. I thought Because it's a game show, so I don't think that it, its production was being struck. Well, I think it was because I, I think some of it was kind of like forced because they wanted to have the tournament of champions um to start back the the season and the writers basically said they were not going to write any new clues obviously um that it was just going to be recycled clues from i see the old old tournaments and stuff and the the players from the tournament of champions came out and said that they're not going to play on the show with recycled clues in solidarity so, yes yeah. exactly so i see that kind of, I think, was kind of forced them into closing, sh shuttering things up. Um, I see. And maybe that's why the Second Chance Tournament is airing right now and is, is brand new. I don't know. Maybe those clues were written before this ever even, you know, went down. Um, yeah. But they are airing new episodes right now. But my understanding was, like, that the, the new episodes outside of this tournament had been halted because mm. of you know, I guess contestants not wanting to participate with recycled clues, which I can understand. Yeah, no, I think that's, that seems reasonable to me. That, that seems fair. I, I don't know exactly how the taping of tournament champions and when that typically or usually takes place, but you know, let's just say the writers don't have, don't get the go ahead from the guild to reenter production on things before the actual, new guild agreement is signed that still should only take two or three more weeks so you'd think that you'd be able to get back into production on jeopardy sort of late october at the very very latest so yeah. hopefully that means that you can turn around something and get your tournament champions around the holiday time that would be great because it never usually airs around then and that would be sort of a fun twist yeah it seems like a very fast <laughs> turnaround but maybe it's possible yeah. and i think there will be a lot of hunger for 
everyone involved, the production company behind Jeopardy, the the studio, the the channels that distribute it, the local affiliates that distribute it, like everyone wants those things. I guess it's is the Terminator Champions on Hulu though. Is that is that aired on TV or is that just on Hulu? Um, I'm trying to think last last year. No, I mean, it is aired on TV, but like they have, you know, the syndicated shows, but then they also had like some of the tournaments they aired in prime time, like at 8, 8 p.m. Eastern. Yeah. And then those would be gotcha. on Hulu the next day. Um, gotcha. So, OK, yeah, yeah. I think so, they're going to do I think they'll probably do that with the tournament champions. I believe that that's what they did last year. So, I mean, I imagine everyone involved has a huge financial incentive to make sure that happens. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I think there's a good chance that it works out. I mean, that's the whole thing, right? With all, if, if all these sort of strikes end, let's say in the next month or, t- you know, month, month and a half, the sort of deluge of A, news, Scott, that we're going to have to talk about this podcast, but B, just like the actual production that's happening in Hollywood, it's going to be crazy in the yeah. last couple of months of the year. It's going to be really wild. And I think obviously that's a, that's a huge boon for all these people, both the, the members who have been striking in terms of the IWJ and the SAG after, but also the directors, the the, you know the the, the 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 crew members so the Ayatsi and and um the you know, similar production people who are who've not been working for almost five to six months because of this it's very I think it's been incredibly challenging we probably honestly haven't talked about it enough and the impact on on people's livelihoods during this whole process including people who sort of were ultimately were out of jobs and weren't even in these guilds Right. So I think it's going to be a huge positive for the industry if they can get back going. And that's sort of an obvious statement to make, but it's a big deal. Yeah, no doubt. All right, Scott, let's talk about Mean Girls. What is, what is the news about the Mean Girls musical adaptation that you wanted to talk about? Well, talking about potentially positive sort of developments for the industry, um, this, uh, of course, is the the adaptation of the Broadway musical of Mean Girls. And we've talked about this project a couple of times before, perhaps. Um, but um, this was going to be a film released straight to Paramount Plus on streaming. And the decision has now been made um, to release the movie in theaters. It's going to be a January 2024 release for this musical adaptation um, of course, I think maybe previously we talked about the fact that it stars Angelry Rice as uh, Katie, the Lindsay Lohan role, and then um, Renee Rapp, um, who played Regina George on Broadway um, and is a singer, m- mostly known for being a singer. Um, she is playing Regina George um, in the film. Um, yeah, the story here, though, really is, again, them, them deciding to release this in theaters. Um, I guess they have decided that this thing could have legs i mean the the downside of it is it is a january release so perhaps they don't yeah it's a dump i mean i mean two minds about it because that's the thing but that's the thing though they don't have to dump it right the dump would be they're putting it on paramount plus to begin with like that's like that's kind of dumping it in a way so why would you go through the effort of putting it out in theaters if you if all you want to do is is dump it you know i think maybe they could like Mean, mean Girls is definitely a, a you know generational thing for our generation in particular. I think Scott, um, but I, I mean I I don't see why this couldn't drive some of the same traffic that like Barbie did to the theater. Now obviously not to that level, but um, I I would think that they'd be going for a similar sort of audience here who um, you know is connected to the nostalgia of Mean Girls. 
and wants to see this sort of slightly different take on it. Um, I mean, I I saw the musical um, when it came to Charlotte last year, a couple of years ago, I guess last year. Um, and it was a lot of fun. You know, it, it does have a lot of the same beats and jokes as the movie, but I, there, you know, there was enough new content as well. Um, and I did, I don't know. I just think that um, I could see an audience for, you know, this sort of trip because uh, th this sort of nostalgic trip, because it is, you know, one of the more beloved movies of a particular generation. And, you know, again, like I said, I think maybe that's a similar audience that was coming out for Barbie. Um, so that may be their, their thought process and wanting to release this in theaters, but regardless, I'm glad they're doing it because I want more movies to be in theater. Well, more, you know, movies like this to be in theaters at least. Yeah. I definitely think there's an overlap in the audience for something like Barbie. I do think one of Barbie's sort of sensations is that it was really able to capture audiences, you know, female audiences, especially of all ages. Like, it, you know, I hear you hear stories all the time of like people who are much older than us who are going to see Barbies in huge, like in huge numbers, right. With, like whole frame groups or whatever of, you know, 40 something women who are going to attend the movie. I don't, I like, do, do those people care about Mean Girls? I don't know. Um, I don't, I don't, I know that we're also not saying that Mean Girls, the musical is going to be an event like Barbie was, but it would yeah. be curious if you can capture some, like some sort of eventizing of that film. I just wonder if, if there is enough ambition and marketing dollars behind it to like really make it successful. Cause I mean, one of the things that yeah. I think, really even like sort of enhanced and doubled down on Barbie's success was just how good and how expansive the marketing campaign was. And I wonder if something like Mean Girls, the musical from Paramount is going to really deliver on that. Yeah. I don't know. Again, I think there's potential there, you know, they yeah, can I agree. get people to dress up, wear pink, you know, like they did for Barbie. Obviously mm -hmm. that's a thing for Mean Girls too. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, I understand not wanting to hold it any longer than than they have to, but why isn't this film not coming out October third? Like, you know what I yeah. mean? Just like, why, why, why aren't they aligning that stunt for that? Like, I, I, I understand that the film's probably not ready to be debuted. Yeah, you know, in a week, right? But do you do you really need to release it in January? Like, why not just hold it until October? You know, maybe they maybe they're going for the scream audience. You know, like the scream uh, movies have come out in this time of year. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I, they I mainly, like Scream Six came out in, in in March, but yeah, yeah, but Scream Five. I, I'm mainly joking, but I think those movies did demonstrate that you can make a financially successful movie, sure, and put it out in January. Um, so maybe they're kind of making that play too. I think that's that's another possibility. Yeah. You know, those those are movies that if they think they're going to get the horror audience, though. I think they got another like, I'm yeah. not sure. what. I'm not saying the horror audience, but I do think maybe there is some crossover there again, a gen, in, in terms of generational um, yeah. things that you, I, I feel like some of the the same age range of people who like Scream is in their wheelhouse. Mean Girls could also be in their wheelhouse. So I could see it. Um, yeah. Maybe they're they're going off of the performance of, of those movies to show that, Hey, we, we can take a chance here, put this out in January, as opposed to October when, you know, it's mm -hmm. going to be competing against more films. It's, it's safe to say. 
All right, Scott, I think that should just about do it for episode 249 of Some Like It's Scott. Where can people find you on social media? Uh, I am at Scarby Dent on all platforms. You can find me at, at Shelton2013 over on Twitter, Letterboxd, and Serialize. Don't forget to also check out our podcast, Patreon, www.patreon.com slash mediaplugpods. If you can support us over there, we'd appreciate that. If not, that's okay. You can still find us on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and wherever else you listen to your podcast. Where we'd love it if you rated and reviewed, subscribed, shared, all that jazz. So we continue to reach a broader audience. And finally, we really appreciate all of you for taking time to listen to us chat about dumb money. We'll be back next week with a review of the sci-fi action thriller, Gareth Edwards, The Creator. Scott, I'll also be knee-deep in the New York Film Festival when we record next time. I will have seen The Boy and the Heron, which is crazy to say out loud. I feel like I haven't truly fully processed that I'm seeing that in less than a week now. But uh, we hope you'll join us next week for our discussion of The Creator. But until then, for Scott Harvey, I'm Scott Shelton. We'll see you next time. See you down the road.